Can vitamin C in critical COVID save lives? That's the topic of this podcast. I'm going to be talking to Professor Paul Marrick, who's the Chief of Emergency Medicine at East Virginia Medical School. And here in the UK, Dr. Marcella Vizcachippi, who is the Head of Research for Surgery, Anesthesia and Emergency or Critical Care at the Chelsea and Westminster Foundation, spending a lot of her time in the adult intensive care unit. But first, to give us a good background to the use of vitamin C in emergency medicine and who is most likely to benefit, I'm joined by Associate Professor Anitra Carr, who is Director of the Nutrition in Medicine Research Group at Otago University in New Zealand. Anitra, welcome. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. I noticed that you completed your postdoctoral fellowship at the Linus Pauling Institute at Oregon State University. Um, was it Linus Pauling's research that got you started on the Royal Road of Vitamin C Research? Uh, well, it was actually a happy coincidence. Um, when I finished my PhD research, I'd been working on looking at uh, how white blood cell oxidants react with our tissues. So these white blood cells produce oxidants to kill bacteria in our body. But these reactive oxygen species can also react with our own tissues and cause inflammation and tissue damage. And so when I finished my PhD, I thought I'd like to investigate how antioxidants such as vitamin C, because vitamin C is one of the most potent antioxidants in our body, can potentially help protect against um, the reaction of these uh, oxidative species with our, our tissues and, 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 you know, save our tissues from damage. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to carry out my postdoctoral research in the United States. And so I wrote to various people who were doing vitamin C research. And um, I, I accepted a position with Dr. Boltz Fry. Mm -hmm. He was a, um, an emerging vitamin C researcher. And when I had accepted the position, he wrote back and said, well, he was actually in Boston at the time, and he wrote back and said, well, actually, I'm moving to Oregon State University to take up the um, chair of the Linus Pauling Institute. The Linus yes. Pauling Institute had just moved to Oregon State University uh, the year before, and so I was very happy with that because I love the um, west coast of the United States, and I really enjoyed working at the Institute, and Unfortunately, Linus Pauling had died just a few years before I started, so I never got to meet him, um, but I very really admire his work. Yeah, I mean, he's a wonderful man and, and a yes. wonderful scientist. And I actually was speaking to Bols uh, just a couple of weeks ago. He's sort of a bit more retired these days. Now, yes. before we look into the role of vitamin C in emergency medicine and especially COVID-19, uh, let's establish a baseline for how much vitamin C we need normally? I mean, how much vitamin C should one have in the bloodstream? Uh, well, ideally, we want our blood at what we call saturating levels. And what this means is that there's enough vitamin C in our blood that it's overflowing into our urine. Mm -hmm. And because vitamin C is water-soluble, any, any of the vitamin that the body doesn't need is excreted. So it's a very safe vitamin. So um, ideally, we take just a bit more than we need, so the body is so that we know that the body is completely saturated, and we know that because it's starting to spill over into the urine. And so, in healthy people, uh, 200 milligrams a day will saturate the blood. But of course, uh, when we get illnesses and, and especially infections, our requirements 
um, increase significantly. We, we can talk a bit more about that as what's, we go on. And what's the blood level that you that would sort of define saturation? So? Yes. Uh, well, it's about 65 to 70 micromole per litre mm -hmm. um, is saturating. It varies slightly in different people. Um, and interestingly, in animals, they always keep their blood at saturating levels and you know, animals can produce their own vitamin C. We're kind of unique in that we've lost the ability to generate our own vitamin C, but most animals can generate their own. And when they become sick or stressed, they actually increase their synthesis of the vitamin to compensate for that. So that suggests mm -hmm. that, you know, it, not only is it important to keep our levels at saturating levels, but it's important to increase our um, intake uh, when we have illnesses. Okay, so we've got sort of 65 to 70 is a sort of safe place to be. I know UK guidelines are that people should have at least 50 as a level, but how do you define deficiency? At one extreme, of course, we've got scurvy, uh, where the gums bleed and the teeth fall out. But what, what, at what level does one start to get worried in terms of blood measures? Yeah, that's, that's what we call the hypervitaminosis C level, and that's about 23 micromolar, and that's blood levels. And that's where you start seeing the subclinical signs of uh, scurvy. So you'll get the lethargy and the fatigue and mood changes such as um, depression and low mood. Um, so that's kind of the subtle first, first effects that you start noticing with, with these lower levels. And deficiency is defined as uh, 11 micromolar, and below that you're really at risk of developing scurvy. Uh, so that's the sort of scurvy level, below 11? Uh, it's a deficiency level. Um, yes. And, you know, people who have scurvy are much lower than that. They're like, you know, two and a half, you know, less than five micromolar. But, you know, if you're below 11, it's defined as deficiency and that's when you start getting concerned and you really do need to start um, supplementing that person so they don't develop scurvy. Now, you talk about 200 milligrams as a sort of good daily dose, but what about older people? We have a lot of people, you know, over 75 in care homes and so on. And I do remember the last time I met Linus Pauling, he was taking um, six grams a day. So yeah. is the 200 milligrams really enough for older people? It's um, the, the dose requirement's not specifically age-dependent. It's more dependent on... Um, your comorbidities and body weight. And, of course, older people tend to have more comorbidities. And so it's the comorbidities that are really defining your intake, so um, what sort of illnesses you have rather than um, your age as such. So, you know, a really healthy healthy older person should be fine um, on, you know, the normal adequate intake. But... You know, older older people who have health conditions definitely should should look at taking more. Yes, I looked because uh, the Linus Pauling Institute uh, website, while they generally agree with the sort of recommended levels, they did make a statement that really older people should be having something more like four hundred milligrams. But that would be yeah, a safe. Yeah, I guess that, yeah, that's that's to be um, on on the safe side. You know, margin of error there. Yeah. And uh, uh, 400 milligrams is quite a lot in the sense that, uh, you know, you're probably going to have to be eating a handful of oranges to achieve that, as an example. Yes, you'd need, you would need um, a lot in your diet. You need to be eating really high vitamin C foods like citrus, et cetera, or, and, and or supplementing on top of your diet as well, just to make sure you're getting enough. 
Now, in the UK, we have every year the National Diet and Nutrition Survey, and they actually measure plasma vitamin C. And uh, uh, the survey shows that 4% of those over 65 um, are under that overt deficiency level of 11. And that actually equates to almost half a million people in Britain. And I've seen you know, some of your research on you know, people with pneumonia and also data on quite a few uh, you know, older people in Scotland uh, admitted to hospital for one condition or another. And it seems that this overt deficiency level below 11 is, is more common than we think. What's your take uh, on that? Yeah, it could. Well, one one issue could be the um, increasing prevalence of dementia and that sort of thing, because that can really affect a person's dietary intake. They they don't eat properly, and so they don't get all the nutrients that they need in their diet. So that could be, you know, a major impacting factor. Which these conditions are increasing. Um, the prevalence of these conditions is increasing around the world. Um, I'm not so yeah. Not- it is a concern in, in, in care homes. I mean, their dietary, I mean, the, the diets in care homes probably aren't um, adequate either, I suspect. Yeah, I mean, I've been looking for data on vitamin C levels in care homes, and I've, I've really drawn a blank because uh, if 4% are below 11 for everyone over 65 in Britain, one imagines that the level in care homes, there might be a much higher percentage of, of people with very low vitamin C levels. Yeah, I think there are a few studies that have shown that have compared um, this and have shown lower levels in people in care homes, definitely. Because what's going to happen to somebody with a level of vitamin C at you know that overt deficiency if uh, if COVID nineteen strikes or in fact any serious flu? Well, when you get any any severe infection, your requirements for vitamin C increase significantly, and if you are already low, you will very easily be pushed into the deficiency range or lower, um, and your intakes will have to be significantly increased as well, depending on the severity of the disease. The more severe it is, the more, the higher your intakes need to be. And so this often isn't taken into account when people get infections, and it's an important aspect to consider. One imagines that's going to affect their ability to survive. Uh, if someone does yeah, have an... Yeah, not only survive, but also the recovery process as well. It can, mm-hmm. um, you know, it can take a long time for people to recover from these serious illnesses. And so mm-hmm. I think increasing their vitamin C intake and other nutrient intake will kind of help with that recovery process as well. Yeah, I was wondering whether some of the um, long COVID symptoms that are being described, you know, the continuous sort of lung pain, difficulty breathing, muscle aches, joint aches, uh, etc., I mean, of course, it's complete conjecture at the moment, but I wondered if some of those might actually relate to a person having a period of several weeks with, you know, with really depleted vitamin C reserves and its knock-on effects on collagen and everything else. Yeah, no, I think I think that's completely true, and um, it's definitely an area that um, should have more research done around it. And I'm hoping people will will do more research in this area. And what happens when you're under viral attack? So if you are exposed to a, a strong virus, I mean, how much vitamin C do you need to maintain that good, healthy 60 to 70 micromole per litre level? Mm. Well, as I mentioned earlier, it really does depend on the severity of the condition. So, And whether you're also talking about preventing it versus treating it, because you need much higher levels if you're at, you know, trying to treat a condition you already have versus trying to 
versus preventing it. Um, there's, yeah, it's hard to know. There's um, various evidence around which suggests that, you know, increasing your intakes to several grams a day um, and multiple doses throughout the day does um, potentially help decrease the severity of the disease, of the infection that you have. Uh, once you get um, much severe condition and end up in the ICU, you definitely do need multiple grams and you need intravenous uh, infusion of the vitamin to, in order to get your doses up high enough. Well, just before talking about that, I mean, I followed Linus Pauling's lead who told me take a gram an hour. When you, when you get the first symptoms of a cold, load up with two or three grams and then take a gram an hour or two grams every two hours. But the point is to have it frequently. And I know Professor Harry Hemmler, he, he also says the same. Um, what, what do you do if you get you know, a really nasty cold or flu? Um, I don't get nasty. Take holds of flus. Okay. <laughs> I because I'm taking you know a preventative dose every day. Right. Well, I take it twice a day, um, right. two hundred milligram or five hundred milligrams twice a day. Yeah. And it's been literally decades since I've had a cold, so I can't tell you what to, what I take when I get a okay. cold because I don't get. Cold. <laughs> okay. That's very good. Uh, okay, and then moving on to the, um, you might need to sit back a little bit from your mic, by the way. Um, uh, moving on to intensive care units, there are reports from around the world from ICUs saving lives with the combination of intravenous vitamin C with steroids and anticoagulants. Uh, but the doses vary a lot. Uh, the lowest I've seen is two grams, one gram every 12 hours, and the highest. Uh, is about 24 grams, either 12 grams every 12 hours or 6 grams every every 6 hours. How do you know what the right dose is? Um, uh, well, we don't yet know what the right dose is. The research is, is still in its infancy, really, and um, a lot of the studies are just reproducing the doses that were used in, in the, the first um, trials that were done in ICU patients. And so this is an important area for future researchers to work out the optimal dose. And that dose will likely vary depending on uh, the severity of the condition. It's, all, it's you know, completely dependent on severity. Um, and if you, if you had patients and you wanted to work out the right dose, would that be based on measuring vitamin C, if you like, before and after and seeing what's actually happening in that respect? Yes. And there have been a couple of small studies have done this in critically ill patients, not, not patients with COVID, and they have shown that two to three grams a day of intravenous vitamin C will eventually saturate their blood levels. Mm -hmm. So that's the bare minimum you'd want to give them. Um, additional doses may have additional, you know, higher doses may have additional benefits. We don't know yet. This is still research that needs to be carried out. And why aren't more ICUs doing this? Uh, well, you know, doctors rely on, you know, evidence-based medicine as much as they can. And the evidence, like I said, it's still, it's still not definitive. You know, the trials are still, you know, being carried out and being published. We don't have all the evidence yet. And so a lot of doctors like to wait until the evidence is in before they treat their patient with that particular therapy. Um, 
you know, they, they want to do what's best for their patient and they're not, doctors aren't taught about vitamins and, and nutrition in their medical practice. So they're not, not always aware of how important these, these nutrients are and all the important functions that they carry out in the body. And so I think a lot of it will be around education, educating the doctors, hopefully getting the sort of information into the medical schools, you know, at an early stage. Yeah, and in terms of sort of measuring and, and, and talking about death rates, I know in the in the UK the death rate was high in ICUs, about sixty percent, and then by by the end of the first wave it had dropped more like forty, forty-two percent. And right now, fortunately, it seems to be much lower, about twenty, twenty-five percent, or something like that. But uh, some of the ICUs, particularly those who are part of the uh, frontline COVID critical care group. Um, uh, working with Dr. Paul Marek, who I'll be talking to next, are, are really they're talking about something like 5% mortality rate. And, you know, that sounds quite amazing. We don't really seem to have data out of China, but we understand that there are lots of ICUs in China also uh, using vitamin C. But I suppose the question is, other than, you know, reporting mortality rates and obviously looking at those who are getting the best results, what else do you measure for improvement? What about inflammatory markers? What about measures of oxygenation? If you could explain a little bit about that, then people listening will know what to look out for as trials are published. Yeah, um, well, I'm not an ICU clinician, so uh, Dr. Merrick will be able to explain these things in more detail. I'm a a biomedical scientist, and so what I tend to look at is, is biomarkers for um, inflammation, for example. And um, I know in Dr. Peng's study, they they did look at inflammatory biomarkers as part of their study, and they did see a decrease in one of the inflammatory biomarkers that they looked at. So this is indicating that vitamin C may be acting by you know one of its mechanisms, maybe through reducing inflammation. And vitamin C has numerous functions in the body. It's pleiotropic. Um, so un unlike drugs, you know, most drugs which have one specific function or one specific target, vitamin C has numerous targets and numerous functions. So that's one of its benefits over a standard drug, you know, it can work in numerous different ways. And um, so once again, these trials will, will show us what, what are the um, endpoints that we should be looking at or the endpoints that it is impacting on. And so this information is still coming out at this stage. Yes, I know Professor Peng was measuring interleukin-6, IL-6. Uh, is that, I mean, if you were running a study, is that what you'd measure? Uh, what are the critical inflammatory yeah, markers? That, yeah, that is uh, one of the standard pro-inflammatory biomarkers that people measure. They're looking at you know, an effect on inflammation. And then uh, in terms of measures of oxygenation, I think he referred to the SOFA index and uh, we see different ways that oxygenation is described. Is that something you've looked at at all in your research? Um, the SOFA score is it's a composite score. So it stands for Sequential Organ Failure Assessment Score. Mm -hmm. And so it does include oxygenation as one of its criteria, but it is also measuring a number of other body functions that kind of break down when you get sepsis. And um, some studies have shown that vitamin C can improve SOFA scores. Others mm -hmm. are less definitive. So I think it just depends on um, the condition that's being looked at and the severity of the condition as to which endpoints are the most relevant to look at. 
Okay, so it's sort of a measure as to how critical is the condition of this person. Yeah. I mean, from the patient's perspective, of course, mortality is one of the (laughs) primary points of interest. But secondarily, it's also um, quality of life, you know, subsequent to the infection. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, are they going to be able to recover adequately and quickly or is it going to be a long, drawn-out process? Because... People who've had sepsis are more susceptible to, to developing, you know, another infection and ending up back in the ICU. So we want to prevent that. So I think the important thing is that these patients are not just given, you know, vitamin C in the ICU, but they also continue to take it after they leave the ICU, you mm-hmm. know, long term and, and, you know, high dietary intakes. And do you think COVID-19 can be a non-fatal disease if it's treated right? both at the sharp end in ICU, but also if starting early, certainly upon hospitalisation, but ideally upon first symptoms? Um, well, it is non-fatal in 97% of the people who get it. Um, those who end up in the ICU are usually there because of comorbidities and other factors that are you know, increasing the susceptibility to severe COVID. Um, so, you know... The issue isn't just the disease, it's also, you know, the comorbidities that have, have caused them to be there. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, vitamin C is not a drug. It's it's a vitamin and, it you know, it, it takes time to work. So, yes, the earlier it's given, the better. Um, you know, ideally, even before you get the disease, you know, prevention is always way better than, than you know, trying to cure a disease. So, yes, earlier the better. Now, I've seen the Chinese medical guidelines in, uh, uh, d- uh, produced by the Shanghai Medical Association, and vitamin C is very much part of their recommended strategy. Do you know if it is being widely used in China? Um, I think they are more open to it than a lot of um, you know, the Western countries. Uh, Dr. Peng will, Peng will be able to give you uh, more information around this. And what about uh, New Zealand? And uh, what about other countries like South Korea who seem to have done extremely well? Uh, well, we have so few COVID cases <laughs> that it, it's, it's not, not an issue. We've hardly had any in ICUs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we, we are an, an unusual case, I guess. And do your ICUs in New Zealand uh, use vitamin C, I mean, for example, for sepsis? Uh, n- not routinely. Uh, mm. The ICU that I've done my research in, in Christchurch, some of the doctors will administer it. Just I think because I've been speaking about it and you know mm. it educated them about it, and so they're more open to using it. But it's not not used routinely yet. No. It's really an education mission we've got, isn't it? It definitely is. Yes. Yeah. And should hospitals be testing COVID-19 patients on arrival and as they progress to check that the dose they're being given is right? Uh, Yes. It's important to know what a person's vitamin C status is before you start giving it to them because if they already have an adequate status of vitamin, giving more vitamin won't make any difference. You know, Mm -hmm. they're already saturated, but... Um, if someone comes in deficient, then you know you have to give them vitamin C and monitoring how much um, their levels change based on dose would be important. The issue is that vitamin C is not routinely measured in the hospital setting. Mm-hmm. It's only ever measured if someone um, suspects scurvy, mm-hmm. just to confirm mm-hmm. that it is scurvy. 
Uh, so doctors aren't used to routinely ordering it. It's it's um, can be um, time consuming and you know costly to run the samples. You know it's it's not easy to measure uh, in the blood. And there are people trying to develop uh, fingerprint testing uh, mm-hmm. for it, like you do with glucose testing for diabetics. Mm-hmm. So if we could have something like that, that would be quick and simple. And now I've got you know, used in a clinic. Yeah, I've got um, urine vitamin C strips in front of me right now. They cost about 20 cents each. I can buy a bottle for about 10 bucks and I get 50 strips. And there seems to be a pretty good study comparing you know, urine to blood. But I think most importantly, as, as you point out, the issue is that, is that normally vitamin C is excreted in the urine. You know, it's a sort of overflow. Yeah. And uh, these strips uh, uh, will show you, you know, very clearly if there's nothing coming out in the urine. In other words, my logic would be they would be the perfect way to find out if someone has no vitamin C in their urine, then you know that there's something to look at. Yes. Um, yeah, they're a blunt tool. Uh, they will tell you if, if they have some in the urine or don't have some in the urine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the correlation between urine and blood levels is not completely linear. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are different aspects that will affect what overflows into the urine, such as kidney function, and this is an issue in a lot of critically mm-hmm. ill patients. Um, mm-hmm. Their kidney function isn't working so well, so they won't be excreting the vitamins. Mm-hmm. but they'll still have high levels in their blood. So it's, you know, it's slightly complicated. Um, but yes, I mean, that's a very easy blunt tool to measure. Do they have it or do they not have it in their urine? Yeah, and if they don't have it, then obviously it's something to look at. Yes, but once again, you have to be cautious. You'd have to know what their kidney function is. Right. Um, yeah. Because if it's poor, they may not... Uh, what happens if it's poor, they may not... Uh, well, I mean, they have- yeah, if they have renal failure, they may not be excreting um, mm-hmm. the vitamin, but it may they may end up with high levels in their blood because they're not excreting it. So this is a uh-huh. concern. If you're giving, okay. giving intravenous doses to this person, their blood yeah. levels will be building up, but they won't be excreting it. Right, okay. The caveat is that, you know, in the ICU, patients who have kidney failure will be on um, dialysis anyway, which clears it from the blood. Right, right, okay. So less of an issue for them. Yeah. Now, um, when I asked the government here, uh, you know, what about vitamin C for COVID prevention? They said, ask Public Health England. And when I asked them, they said, ask the um, SACN or the Scientific Advisory Committee of Nutrition. And uh, and uh, what they say, and by the way, they quote your research. So you've had an impact over here. Um, they say the scoping exercise indicates a lack of robust evidence at this current time. So there's an opening there to suggest that specific nutrients um, can reduce the risk or severity of COVID-19. Um, so how do you respond to that? Well, with respect to COVID-19, there is currently a lack of evidence. But that's because these trials, I mean, we've only had, we've had the disease for less than a year and most clinical trials take multiple years to run, to get off mm-hmm. the ground and run. And so we're only just starting to get the first trials published now. So there is a vitamin D trial that has recently been published that showed that um, in the people who received the vitamin D precursor compound, only 2% ended up in the ICU versus half of the control group ended up in the ICU. And there were no deaths in the in the um, supplement group. There were two deaths in the control group. So 
And Dr. Peng's study, which is in um, preprint now, has shown a decrease in mortality in the more severe patients. So the evidence is starting to accumulate and more and more trials will be published over the next year. And given that vitamin C is safe uh, and is very much part of our physiology, uh, uh, do you think, I mean, obviously it's preferable, but do you think we really have to wait until there are large-scale randomized controlled trials or is there a weight of evidence now, given that there are people, significant numbers of people dying from this condition? Mm -hmm. Is there enough weight of evidence right now to be recommending vitamin C? I think so, because there have been, you know, decades of research carried out in patients with pneumonia and sepsis, which are both complications of COVID. Uh, the issue being that doctors doctors want studies that have been specifically carried out in COVID patients, mm-hmm. although, you know, strictly speaking, that's not necessary if the symptoms are very, you know, the complications and symptoms are very similar to, you know, any other patient who has pneumonia or sepsis. And they may not be. I'm not an expert on um, symptoms of COVID, as I'm not a doctor. There might be slight variances. But because vitamin C is such a general acting factor, it just supports, you know, the whole body, you know, organ function, various organ functions and immune system. It's involved in, you know, synthesis of important hormones. You know, it wouldn't hurt those patients to get them. And I can guarantee that most of them will be deficient and or hypervitamin. Vitaminosis C. I mean, Paul Merrick has recently carried out a wee observational study that showed that um, the mean vitamin C levels of their patients and the COVID patients in the ICU were at the hypervitaminosis C cutoff, you know, level. So half of them were below that. So um, I don't think it would hurt. It's cheap. You know, it's not exp- not an expensive compound. It can be, you know, readily synthesised around the world. There are lots of places that can synthesise it. So, you know, for me, I, you know, I would recommend giving it to the patients, particularly if they can be tested first and just, and just confirm that they do have low levels because then you know that it will benefit them in one way or another. Yes, and there was a Barcelona ICU that reported that 17 out of 18 of their, uh, of their critical care patients had actually overt vitamin C deficiency or in many cases undetectable. So yeah, Yes. Uh, it, the issue is that it's very hard to measure the vitamin C levels accurately and carefully. Mm-hmm. And so um, we have to be cautious um, with what's being reported and make sure that it has been measured accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that may be an, you know, an under, you know, overestimation of you know, deficiency, I suspect. Uh, in terms of studies that we're waiting for, yes, the Zong, Zonglan Wuhan study is fascinating, uh, the first randomized controlled trial, uh, slightly underpowered. Uh, I actually spoke to him in April, and they'd run out of patience. Yeah. Uh, it was a real shame. He was pleading to other countries to you know, follow the same protocol. They were putting ventilated patients uh, onto either vitamin C, 12 grams, intravenous every 12 hours or sterile water. And I showed the preliminary results to one of my favorite professors of pharmacology. And in those with the higher SOFA scores, so the yes. most critically ill, uh, there was a very strong trend, 68% less mortality, a, a, a remarkable difference in the inflammatory marker IL-6, and also oxygenation level. 
And yes, I mean, what struck me about this, I was looking at the dexamethasone steroid trial, and uh, that was a difference of 23% mortality on the steroid and 26% mortality on the placebo, much bigger study. But here we're looking at a potential 68% difference in mortality in the most severely ill. What's your, uh, and I, I presume the peer review process is you know, happening, I, so we can't comment too much until it's out. But I would imagine that it's not so much those results that are going to change. What's your take on that? Uh, well, it's very encouraging, and it does confirm earlier studies um, in patients with sepsis, which did show there was a study in Iran which showed 70% decrease in mortality in the patients who received vitamin C. And also Dr. Fowler's study in the US showed about a 30% decrease in mortality. And I think something important to keep in mind is that we may see different results depending on the country that the study's carried out in because um, low to middle income countries can have much higher prevalence of deficiency, vitamin C deficiency in their populations. And so this means that they're going to be much more susceptible to um, you know, overt deficiency if they become infected. And so more, I think, more likely to respond to vitamin C infusion. So we may see greater decreases in mortality, et cetera, in low to middle income countries versus the higher income countries where, you know, usually more, more trials are carried out in high income countries. But I think we have to also look at these other countries that are being, you know, badly affected by COVID and, you know, ideally run trials in those countries as well because we may see better effects. And the, one of my concerns about the trials that are in the pipeline, so to speak, one of them is the REMAP-CAP study. Uh, there's another one, Love It, uh, is their, you know, their design uh, is to give vitamin C for four days uh, to critically ill people and then stop. I'm a little worried about that because I've looked at the studies on sepsis and it does seem that it's important to continue and not just you know, do it for a very short period of time. What's your take on that? Yes, I, I agree with you. Uh, the reason these trials are doing the four days is because the original trials did four days. And so they're trying to reproduce the data from the original trials, see if it's reproducible. Uh, but the pharmacokinetic studies have shown that if you do stop the vitamin C, some of the patients' vitamin C levels will drop right back down to, you know, their low baseline levels again indicating that they do need continued um, administration of the vitamin. Ideal, you know, ideally, the whole time in the, while they're in the ICU, they should be getting the vitamin. And also, once they leave uh, the hospital, start taking it orally, take oral supplementation as well. What happens if you've designed a study that may have uh, you know, a limitation in that respect and uh, it, it becomes a sort of ethical issue? <laughs> you know, you've literally got patients uh, in your ward and and uh, you take them off the vitamin C and they start crashing. I mean, what's the what's the sort of ethical position there, the scientific position about altering a study design for the benefit of the patients? Yeah, yeah, that it is a very tricky question, um, and it's up to the investigators who are running the study and also the regulatory organisations that are overseeing the study. There's lots of regulations around running a clinical trial. Um, it's very hard changing study design once once you started a trial. It's it's um, not easy to do, not ideal. Um, 
It's a tricky one, it isn't it? It can be done. Yeah. It is. Yeah, I can't really comment on it too much. Well, thank you very, very much for your excellent research and uh, keeping on the case on vitamin C. And I, I look forward to your continued published research and studies. And thank you for enlightening us about the role of vitamin C, uh, particularly at the sharp end of uh, COVID-19. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. So now let's talk to Dr. Paul Marrick, who's Chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the East Virginia Medical School in the US, who has told me he has cracked the COVID code. Dr. Paul Marrick, I'm extremely honored to be speaking to you. I know how busy you are saving lives. So have you cracked the COVID code? Yeah, well, thanks, Patrick. Thanks for speaking with me this morning. So, you know, what we think we've figured out how to treat this disease. Um, and, you know, this is based on our previous understanding of the treatment of sepsis. This is based on our understanding of this disease, COVID, and then our personal experience. The problem is that no one believes us. Um, so... It's obviously extremely frustrating. You know, we have good results um, and we see it work with our own eyes. And I have a colleague in Houston who's using the same protocol and he sees the same thing. But the frustration is, is that people just don't want to believe us because it's too straightforward, it's too simple and it's cheap. And, you know, that goes against many... Um, basic principles. And to put it into context, uh, because I was uh, getting information from uh, Dr. Jason Varon over in Houston, and he reported on, I think, 20, his first 24 people through ICU with no deaths. How many people have you had with COVID-19 through your ICU? And what's your mortality rate? Yeah, so we've had about 40 patients. Uh, we've had two deaths. Both of these patients were over the age of 85, had severe comorbidities like end-stage cirrhosis and end-stage lung disease. So, you know, I think their chances of putting through were minimal. Otherwise, all the other patients have left and have done really well. Um, we actually had a patient who was admitted dead. So this patient had a cardiac arrest at home. Uh, he had COVID and had massive pulmonary emboli. He was admitted dead to our hospital, and remarkably, he left, walked out of the ICU last week. So not only have we really not had deaths, but patients who were admitted dead, we've actually managed to resurrect. And, yeah, I mean, that's extraordinary. Um, here in, in the UK, every week we get a report from the Intensive Care National Audit and Research Group, uh, and they are reporting... Uh, 51, 52% leave dead from ICUs. Of those on ventilators, which unfortunately in the UK is the majority, uh, the death rate is two-thirds. Uh, it's a terrible thing. So in essence, and remember, we're talking here more to a public audience aware about nutrition. So these are not ICU specialists you're addressing, but what is the essence of your protocol? So, yeah. So, you know, if you look, what you said is true. So there's recent data out of New York. They looked at the first 5,700 patients and the mortality on a ventilator was 86%. So basically all patients who go on a ventilator die. And you obviously then have to question what they're doing. And if something's not working, you have to say, well, this is not working. We need to do something else. 
So I think fundamentally, and this is where many people have gone astray, is you have to understand the disease. And it seems somewhat obvious and basic. You have to understand the disease you're treating to effectively treat the disease. And I think without question, COVID-19 has two phases. There's the early viral replicator phase where the virus, COVID, COVID-2, replicates in the nasopharynx. And it actually replicates aggressively and reaches very high concentrations. And that's why it's so infectious, is that it's, it's, it's highly contagious because it replicates to an enormous degree. What then happens is some patients, and we don't know how many, may just have an asymptomatic infection. Their host immune response overcomes the virus, and the virus goes away. There is a percentage of patients who become symptomatic. So they develop typical flu-like symptoms, which is typical of influenza. Fever, cough, headache, myalgia, myalgia being sore muscles, which is typical of influenza. So the duration of those symptoms depends upon whether they stay at home or come to hospital. Um, And if they stay at home, it generally lasts about five days, six days, and can be pretty severe. Those patients who have more severe symptoms who come to hospital, they remain symptomatic for up to about 12 days. So this is a, is, is a pretty aggressive virus. So that's the first symptomatic phase, which is really characterized by viral replication in the upper airway. And then what happens is it goes from the upper airway to the lower airway. And the factors that predict that are not entirely clear. It probably is a, is a interrelationship between the patient's defense mechanism, the viral load. And that happens at about day seven. So you, you transition from the upper airway replicative phase to the lung phase. Once it gets into the lung, um, the virus binds to specific receptors on the pulmonary lining, the alveoli, and then it induces an intense inflammatory response. So this is really the key. You have an early viral replicative phase where patients have symptoms like flu, but then they transition into a phase which is marked by severe hyperinflammation. So the virus triggers the production of inflammatory mediators. So we call these cytokines. The cytokine is a protein made by the host with the goal of increasing the host's immune response. But what happens in some patients is the immune response gets completely out of control. So this is a fire which is out of control. And indeed, it's the host immune response, which is killing the patient and not the virus at this stage. And it's a a vital concept to understand because what is actually happening is the host immune response is out of control and it's the host immune response which is killing the patient. And that's what happens in sepsis, isn't it? Yes, it's very similar to sepsis. This is the analogy between COVID and sepsis. And so the current treatment is just to support them 
and wait for the storm to die down. The problem is what happens if you do that is the storm damages the lung. And I think we now have data, particularly from New York, that if you don't institute anti-inflammatory treatment, this then progresses to severe what's called the fibroproliferative stage of acute lung injury. And these patients have severe irreversible lung injury and will likely never come off a ventilator. So, you know, what, what we say is that in the early phase, like, you know, when patients are symptomatic, you want to give them medications and, and, and dietary supplements which improve the immune system. However, when they get to the, this pulmonary phase, you really want to down-regulate the immune response. And this is such a vital key. The World Health Organization, the American Thoracic Society, etc., etc., basically said you should not use steroids. Steroids are drugs which don't regulate the immune response. And because of this advisory, people were absolutely scared to use drugs which don't regulate the immune response. However, they made this basis, this decision based on um, superficial and inadequate review of the literature. And this was a major mistake. We now know that it's wrong. We know that a study from SARS that looked at 5,000 patients with SARS showed that if you gave steroids early, it was not helpful and they made it worse. But if you gave it in the later stage of SARS, it significantly reduced mortality. So what are you giving in this later stage? So what we do is we give a combination of corticosteroids. So corticosteroids are probably the most powerful anti-inflammatory drugs. They switch off inflammation. I think most people know about corticosteroids. Together with corticosteroids, we add vitamin C. So vitamin C has very potent antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. And what we've shown clinically and in the laboratory is that vitamin C and corticosteroids act together. They act synergistically to down-regulate the inflammatory response. How much vitamin C do you give? So we've increased the dose slightly from our sepsis protocol because this is a different disease. So with the sepsis protocol, we gave 1.5 grams Q6. We, we found that with COVID, we need a higher dose. And this may be because you require a higher dose to get into the lung. Uh, so we give three grams Q6. Q6 then, means every six hours. Every six hours. So 12 grams spread out over that 24 hours. Yes, and we give this together with corticosteroid. Our standard dose is methylprednisolone, 40 milligrams twice a day. In addition, the other third component is we anticoagulate these people it's become absolutely clear that the cytokine storm or this inflammatory storm activates clotting. And the clots can be big clots or small clots. And this bears on both patients having major clotting events, but also the small clots interfere with oxygenation in the lung. So we start full anticoagulation at the beginning when we give vitamin C and we give corticosteroids. Now, obviously, the ideal is not to have people coming into this massive immune uh, cytokine storm. So when someone comes into your hospital, uh, what do you give them? 
Yes, yeah, so so that's a really good question. So, you know, we, we're not really sure. How, you know, you don't want to give anti-inflammatories too early. And then obviously you transition over to this, this stage. So, you know, what we do when patients come to the floor, is we, which is the medical ward, we watch them closely. We give them oral vitamin C. We give them zinc. Um, we give them some anticoagulants and we watch them closely. And then at the moment that we see they're deteriorating and they're progressing to the pulmonary inflammatory phase, that's the point we hit them hard with vitamin C, corticosteroids, and heparin. So I think the, big, the problem is people wait too late. And it's like, it's like a fire. The earlier you can extinguish the fire, the better the outcome. And the longer you wait, the more damage it does to the lung. Now, you give them zinc, but I, I read in your earlier protocol uh, that you also gave quercetin. And then I was reading that quercetin is uh, a zinc ionophore. It helps to get zinc inside virally infected cells, and it then helps to kill them. Yes. Are you still using quercetin? Yeah. So, you know, people think that, you know, we just sucked out this protocol out of thin air and you know, each and every element is based on science and extensive scientific publications. So, for example, zinc, it's been known for a long time that people who zinc deficient have impaired immunity and higher risk of infection. What is fascinating, though, with COVID is that zinc ions actually interfere with viral replication. They interfere with the ability of the virus to replicate in cells. Um, so it has an added benefit. The problem is zinc doesn't get into cells really well. And as you say, quercetin is a zinc ionophore, which helps zinc get into the cell. And how so, much do you give in, in, when in a hospitalized patient of zinc and quercetin? Yes. Yeah, so people, so it seems based on a meta-analysis with influenza. So, you know, a lot of this data is based on projections and assumptions. So it's been shown that if you, in order to prevent influenza and reduce the duration, you need between 60 and 100 milligrams of elemental zinc a day. So that's the dose we use, which is a little bit higher than the regular dose of zinc. But I think it's pretty safe. If you give it for a reasonably short period of time, it's pretty safe. In terms of vitamin C and how much quercetin? Yeah, so in terms of quercetin, unfortunately, it's it's not available in the in most hospital pharmacies because it's considered a nutritional supplement. So we we recommend it to pay, you know patients at home who's symptomatic. Unfortunately, most hospital formularies don't have it available. We recommend a dose of about five hundred milligrams twice a day. Um, so if patients can get it from you know it's very it's readily available. You know, uh, uh, over the counter at, at most supermarkets and pharmacies. Um, so we would recommend that. Uh, so I think the quercetin, the zinc, and the vitamin C has a more important role in preventing progression of disease and in the early phase. Once the patient has actually become severely symptomatic, uh, i.e., has respiratory symptoms, that's when we hit them hard with the trifecta of um, corticosteroids, ascorbic acid, and, and heparin. 
And how much vitamin C when they come into your hospital do you give? Because this is oral. Yeah, so we give about 500 milligrams twice or three times a day. Um, so the, the dosage and the, the route depends on how sick they are. So if, if patients are, are not that critically ill, the absorption is adequate and you can probably get adequate levels orally. However, the sicker they become, the lower the vitamin C levels. And at that point, you require IV vitamin C. This is the thing I find fascinating. The adrenal glands have 100 times more vitamin C than anywhere else in the body. And I know that you've measured scurvy, literally scurvy. I mean, that is incredibly low vitamin C levels, almost undetectable in your sepsis patients. So uh, two questions, really. Have you checked uh, vitamin C level in any COVID patients? And also, if this virus is expending and consuming and using up all this vitamin C, then surely the cortisone's just not going to work. And that means that the person's fight flight mechanism designed to keep them alive is not going to kick in. Yeah. So you asked two really important questions. So, you know, what people don't realize, there are two important points, is that humans, guinea pigs, a few fish and bats are the only species on this planet that actually don't synthesize vitamin C. And vitamin C actually is not really a, a nutrient, it's a stress hormone. So that when sheep or cats or dogs get stressed, they increase their vitamin C concentration, partly by being secreted by the adrenal gland. So the adrenal gland secretes both cortisol as well as vitamin C. In addition, the liver increases synthesis of vitamin C. So this is not this is not made up stuff. This is based on absolute science, and we know this absolutely and categorically that vitamin C in other species is an important stress hormone. So I have a colleague who's actually measured vitamin C levels in COVID patients, and they're undetectable, undetectable. The levels are so low in all COVID patients they cannot be detected. So we absolutely know that patients who COVID, apart from all the other benefits, are absolutely profoundly deficient in vitamin C. So all of them actually meet the diagnostic criteria for so-called scurvy. So just on that basis, there shouldn't be so much controversy about giving vitamin C. These people have a disease-induced scurvy. Now, you try to keep people off uh, ventilators at all costs. In these first 40 of your COVID patients, how many have you managed to keep off ventilators? Yeah, so we've, yeah, so we've realized, as most people have, that getting them on a ventilator is, is precarious because the likelihood is they're not going to get off. So we've had about, out of the 40, maybe five or six who actually went on a ventilator, there is a small group of patients who deteriorate so rapidly that you need to put them on a ventilator. But those patients we treat, we, we use very gentle modes of ventilation and we treated them aggressively with our protocol to downregulate the inflammatory storm. And with that technique, all of them have come off a ventilator. So we haven't had a single patient who's become ventilator dependent which is completely at odds of the experience of New York City and um, 
and in Italy and Spain. I have a colleague who's going to volunteer in New York City, and he tells me that patients who've been on ventilators for four to five weeks with absolutely no hope these patients will ever get off a ventilator. And how long is it taking you to get people out of ICU? So about the usual is, so there's no question this is a very pesky disease. So, you know, when patients come to our ICU in septic shock, we get them out within three days and they turn around quickly. There's no question that this is a different disease. They have overwhelming inflammatory storm. So it takes longer to quell the storm or put out the fire. So I would say generally about five to six days to get them out of the ICU, which seems to be a lot shorter than other people uh, are, are reporting. Now, the tragedy here in the UK, I've, I've, there's now a couple of uh, ICUs who are using vitamin C. Uh, I think the dose is too low, about a gram every uh, 12 hours. Uh, I'm not sure that that's enough. But the biggest tragedy is that they are being presented with patients who already have multiple organ failure, and they're, they're effectively putting everybody straight onto a ventilator. And I've stressed uh, that they've got to start earlier. The minute a patient comes into hospital, that's when you need to start. Yeah, so you make some important points. The first is I think there's been a lot of misinformation and false information and inadequate information that has been volunteered to, to the general community. And I presume this is in the US and I presume in the UK, that people don't understand this disease. And if you don't understand this disease, you're not going to seek medical attention in a timely fashion. So there's absolutely no question of doubt that once patient, obviously not every patient can be admitted to hospital. Most of these patients have flu-like illness and they get better. But those that are at home, once they develop shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, they must move their butts to the hospital. That's a very important transition from the viral replicator phase to the cytokine storm phase. And if you wait until the last minute, obviously, the, the, the longer you wait, the more damage has been done, the more difficult it is to reverse the course. So it's absolutely essential that, that the public understands that once they develop shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, they must come to hospital. And it's at that time that the physicians need to treat them aggressively. Now, we have some dose-finding studies, and the dose that you're suggesting is way too low. This is a highly inflammatory disease, and you need to get adequate concentrations into the lung. So a dose of one gram Q12 or 12 hourly is just not going to be adequate. We discovered that our sepsis dosing of 1.5 grams every six hours actually had some effect, but wasn't adequate. That's why we increased the dose to three grams every six hours, which we think is, is optimal in combination with steroids. It's really important to stress that the vitamin C and the corticosteroids work together. Are there any adverse effects from the vitamin C? Do you need to check people for G6PD deficiency or kidney problems? Yeah, so that's a good question. It's absolutely safe. There's no question of doubt. We're unaware of a... We've treated here over 1,600 patients with sepsis, we, and we follow these patients very closely. We're unaware of a single side effect. 
The only caveat is that if you use point-of-care glucose testing, which with a certain glucometer, so this is a finger stick which measures glucose level, with one of the manufacturers, it can't distinguish between glucose and vitamin C, so it can give you a falsely elevated blood glucose level. So that's the only caution, and that's only with a particular point-of-care glucose monitor. Otherwise, we're absolutely unaware of a single side effect. So it's completely and utterly safe. Dr. Paul Marek, I'm aware that every minute I keep you on this podcast is a minute that you are not out there helping someone. So I'm going to thank you immensely for sharing this little pocket of time, which we will get to um, thousands of people. So everybody listening, please make sure that all your friends and family and any medical colleagues you know listen to this. Dr. Paul Marek, thank you very, very much. Sure, Patrick, and stay healthy. My next guest, Dr. Marcella Vizcachippi, is the Research Lead for Surgery, Anesthesia and Critical Care at the Chelsea and Westminster Foundation Trust, working in the Adult Intensive Care Unit with patients with COVID-19. And she is also a Senior Honorary Clinical Lecturer at Imperial College in the Faculty of Medicine. Welcome, Marcella. Hello, good afternoon, Patrick. <laughs> now, were you using vitamin C in your intensive care unit in the first wave? My answer to your question is yes. We use antioxidants in critical care as part of our standard medical management of critically unwell patients. And why do you use antioxidants? The why is because critically, critically ill patients uh, tend to, to have high baseline metabolic rate, which results in high utilization of fuel or energy. So, and if the cells that are our soldiers run out petrol, then they start shutting down. The antioxidants are part of the necessary ingredients for the right combustion, basically. Now, we're often told that you don't need much vitamin C, just eating an orange, getting uh, maybe 50 milligrams, maybe 100 milligrams is enough. But in this intensive care situation, how much were you giving? Normally, we prescribed one gram twice a day. So we tend to give around two grams to four grams a day. And it depends very much on the severity of disease of our patients. Now, you're giving this intravenously. And obviously, you've got very sick patients, many of whom are struggling to breathe. So uh, uh, the intravenous route is not only practical, but also it's, it's going to deliver more than one would give orally. Is there any way of, of even roughly quantifying that? What does two to four grams intravenous mean if one could take it orally? I think this is the equivalent because the absorption is 100% if the gastrointestinal system works. Mm -hmm. We tend to give intravenously in the form of 
Pabrinex, that is a compound of vitamin B and vitamin C, or we give through enteral root, and enteral root is just the simple version of ascorbic acid that is one gram BD as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so are you saying that basically when, when the body is in an emergency situation with a lot of oxidation and inflammation, then provided the digestive system is working, it will suck up uh, vitamin C very effectively? Yes, as, and that is the preferred route for administration of vitamin supplements mm. uh, to our patients as long as they, they are clinically stable and the gastrointestinal system works. And how were your results uh, in the first wave compared to the national average? Because I spoke to a lot of ICUs who were not giving vitamin C. To be honest, I think that when we talk about outcomes in COVID-19 patients, it is very difficult from my point of view to attribute, you know, the outcomes uh, to one particular uh, approach or clinical management or one type of approach to care. Mm -hmm. I think that the outcomes of our patients depends very much on a multidisciplinary approach and is a combination of treatment that make patients uh, get better. In in regards to your question, is outcomes, we have one of the lowest mortality in the country. And this is not because of vitamin C or because we uh, provide X or Y treatment. I think that our mortality is the lowest in the country because we were able to identify and stratify our patients at the very very beginning of the first wave. We managed to identify simple, preventable complications that tend to be the cause of death on these patients. And by doing that, we managed to introduce early clinical management of these conditions, such as management of clots mm-hmm. and hydration. So it's fantastic to hear that your approach is producing such a great result. Are other intensive care units in the UK watching what you are doing and learning? And does that mean uh, that there will be more emphasis on nutrients, especially vitamin C antioxidants, in more intensive care units in the UK in the second wave? I hope so, Patrick. I think that basic clinical management is key to success. You know, it's very simple. It's simple medicine. Sometimes we make it too complex. It's hydration, a bit of antioxidants, and given electrolytes just to normalize everything while we treat and support these patients. I think that that is a key. Early identification of problems and simple management throughout. So that is a key. And I believe that after publication of our results, 
and sharing our data in the Northwest London and across the country and internationally. We hope that more units start doing basic things like thinking of good hydration and antioxidants. Now, cases are sadly going up. Um, what are you doing differently in relation to vitamin C in the second wave? Uh, basically, we in view that our mortality was one of the lowest in the country. We just continue doing what we have started during the first wave. Something different, perhaps now we started measuring not routinely, but from time to time, the levels of vitamin C in urine of our critically ill patients. And what are you finding? <laughs> I think that the results vary from one patient to another. The interesting bit is that patients on two grams of vitamin C still have low level of vitamin C in urine. So that was kind of interesting. And I need to follow that up. We need to think about doing more research in this area, perhaps, because it's not what I was expecting after, after replacing vitamin C. And um, as a result, are you considering upping the dose? Have you experimented with that? It's not experimenting. It's like if you measure something, it's because you will act on. So basically, since we started measuring, and when we measure it, and if the levels are low, we tend to increase the dose. And there are patients that may receive up to six grams a day, and there are patients that just receive one gram a day, and it's enough. So the beauty of measuring a level of a drug or a medication is that then we can act and adjust the dose to the patient's needs. Now, it's not so easy to get vitamin C routinely measured uh, uh, on the National Health Service, at least uh, at the sort of GP level. So is it, uh, is it useful and more practical to be considering urinary measurement of vitamin C? To be honest, I just started measuring it and think that I need to look into details about how this, you know, can be done broadly and perhaps we need to think about a feasibility study. But saying that is a urine dipstick. It's mm. very easy to do it and it takes 20 seconds to have a result. So it doesn't harm and it could be easily adopted as the management is a straightforward management. Increase the intake of vitamin C, like drink more oranges or eat more avocado <laughs> or take some tablets. So I suppose that is something that we need to think about. I was, talk I was talking to Dr. Anitra Carr, Associate Professor of uh, Nutritional uh, medicine research in New Zealand. And she said something that I didn't know that really interested me. And, and uh, 
to put the context of this, we, we call an overt deficiency of vitamin C in the blood a level of 11 micromoles per litre. The, the government kind of wants us at 50. You know, that's, that's kind of healthy place. But she pointed out that almost all animals keep their vitamin C level in the blood between 60 and 70 with vitamin C um, spilling over into the urine. So there's always vitamin C in the urine. And I asked her, um, what happens if you find no vitamin C in the urine? And she said, well, that's, you know, that's very bad. Unless you have a kidney problem, you are looking at deficiency. It is normal to have um, vitamin C in the urine. So she thought from the dynamics of it that urine testing would, you know, should be pretty useful clinically. Yeah, I think so. I think that is very simple test. And as I said, we need a flow of blood and any antioxidants will improve the peripheral circulation, mm -hmm. will improve the flow of blood to end organs, and hopefully, you know, that will improve the delivery of nutrients and oxygen to the cells that work very actively during, you know, an infection. So it's a very simple strategy, and it could help. Now, working backwards, uh, and I'm thinking here of the recent uh, uh, vitamin D trial in, in Spain, where they gave very large amount of vitamin D to, to hospitalized patients, pretty much on arrival. And the, the patients on the vitamin D, only 2% ended up in the intensive care units with no deaths, compared to 50% on the on the, um, on the, on the uh, uh, control group, the placebo. Do you think that vitamin C should be given on arrival, not just in intensive care units, but as soon as someone arrives in a hospital with breathing problems and COVID symptoms? To be honest, I think that any unwell patient coming to hospital should have, you know, basic clinical management, like good hydration, administrative replacement of electrolytes, and, uh, you know, administration of vitamin C, for instance, or vitamin D. If, if winter, there are not many sunny days, and all the sunlight, you know, and we are indoors, not eating very well because we are unwell, you know, kind of expected to have low levels of these basic elements that are necessary for our cells combustion. And even before someone gets to hospital, um, on the one hand, we have sort of general advice, which is vitamin C does nothing for colds. On the other hand, there are a lot of experts out there like Professor Harry Himmler, who is saying, you know, during these COVID times, and especially if you start to get symptoms, people should be supplementing, uh, you know, somewhere between two and six or even eight grams if they have severe symptoms. What should we be telling the public to do when they start to get symptoms of a cold, which could be COVID? To be honest, people need to be aware that not only for COVID, but for any medical condition, any type of infection, people need to think about basic things. You know, good hydration, you know, try to eat more bananas, try to have some vitamin C in the form of vitamin C or fruits or vegetables. 
you know, it's just doing the basics right. And, you know, that will help us if we get an infection to have a mild infection instead of a severe infection. A virus has a cycle and we just need to prevent the complications associated to an infection. And to make this practical, if you, if you get an infection uh, as well as eating fruit and vegetables, do you, do you supplement vitamin C and how much do you supplement? So since I was 40, since my 40s, I started supplementing vitamins and, uh, you know, and trace elements as well as magnesium. I think it's quite important because the style of life that we have Busy life. Sometimes our diet is not great. It's not good enough. So I tend to supplement in preparation or ahead of an infection. So if I get it, it's mild. Okay. And uh, finally, I just want to say thank you very much for sharing your time. I know you're under a, a massive amount of demand uh, working at the Chelsea and Westminster, and also teaching uh, medicine, good medicine. Uh, which includes, of course, nutritional medicine. So thank you very much for taking the time for this interview. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you for, for taking your time to, 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 to listen to me and see that sometimes medicine is about basics before we can think about something different. So thank you. This is the last in our series of podcasts exploring vitamin C nutrition and covid and the last in our podcast for 2020. So may I wish you a very happy Christmas. And I look forward to seeing you again in the new year when I will be interviewing the wonderful Dr. David Unwin, who has started a revolution in general practice medicine in the UK using a low glycemic load or a low carb diet uh, not only to reverse diabetes, but also to help weight loss. So if you do eat too much over Christmas and you want to find out what to do to burn off that excess weight and get your blood sugar under control, do tune in to my podcast in January with Dr. David Unwin.